This is the Urban Political, the podcast on urban theory, research, and activism. Hello, and welcome to the Urban Political, to our uh, episode after a long bre- summer break. Um, we are today talking about urban sovereignty, radical cities in Latin America and elsewhere with uh, Gianpaolo Baiocchi. Introduce uh, yourself to our listeners. Uh, thank you. My name is Gianpaolo Baiocchi. I am a Brazilian-born but U.S.-based uh, urban scholar. I teach at uh, New York University. I direct something uh, here called the Urban Democracy Lab, uh, which uh, tries to do much as your podcast to bridge the activist and scholarly divide around urban issues. Uh, and I've been interested in been working on issues of urban democracy, primarily uh, about Brazil and Latin America for some time. And in recent years, in the most recent past, I've actually been working with some US-based organizations like Right to the City and Housing Justice for All uh, around contemporary urban issues in the US and trying to figure out how to leverage some of this experience as a as a leverage it as a way to open up spaces for meaningful action on this side of things in the U.S. That's great, Gianpaolo. Um, so we that means uh, my my colleague Ross Beveridge, who's uh, sitting right next to me, and I are very pleased that you uh, had the time. Uh, took the time to talk uh, to us um, today. We had originally already uh, planned to have you on board um, on the episode uh, discussing the uh, more recent uh, book f- um, from uh, collecting um, Murray Bookchin's works. Um, but so we're happy to have you today uh, in a solo uh, conversation. And to get us started, uh, I'd like to have you talk about one of your main interests, uh, urban politics in Latin American cities, uh, particularly the progressive or radical governments of the movements in the 1990s and 2000s. So, Gianpaolo, could you provide us with an overview of what you have termed radical cities in Latin America? Uh, moving from the past to the present. Uh, thank you, Marcus. And, and before I start, I just wanted to, first of all, thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. And uh, I wanted to congratulate you. I'm actually a little bit uh, intimidated by the range of very eloquent and good guests and good conversations you have had uh, before me. Your podcast is really terrific. I love the ambition of connecting the scholarly and activist. I love your global s- scope. Uh, I love your good humor. It it really is a a, a re- really excellent podcast, and uh, I really appreciate being on it with you all today. Um, so the I, I will we'll put up a link on the episode website for for a recent issue of a journal called the Knuckle Report on the Americas, where we decided to take stock of where radical cities were with Latin America today. And as you were saying, um, Marcus, the radical, it, it, I, I come at it from a sort of interesting, from a, a sort of curious point of view, 
which is, I, w- I was very heavily involved in the radical cities discussion uh, in Latin America, which flourished in the 90s and uh, through the early 2000s. And it was pretty insular in the sense that, you know, people looked back at some experiments and looked to Eastern Europe in some way. Um, but it, it, it sort of developed pretty autonomously from this municipalist discussion that we have today. So it struck me uh, two, three years ago, like, wow, the municipalist discussion has this very strong European accent. Uh, To some extent, uh, Bookchin, of course, is, uh, you know, Vermont, was a Vermont-based thinker, is a little bit about the United States, but it's mostly European. And so... In, in this issue, we were trying to figure out how the Latin America story relates and doesn't relate to this municipalist, important municipalist discussion. So a first thing, you know, is, is we have to sort of place the Latin America version in some context. Um, and I tend to think, uh, if, if you don't mind just me taking two minutes to talk about this, I tend to think of Latin America radical city radical cities having sort of three generations to them. So there's one kind of early pioneer cities, and this is, you know, might be Porto Alegre uh, in Brazil, or might be uh, one of the early cities, uh, BL Salvador in Peru in the 80s. Anyways, as these countries were almost all of them coming out of military dictatorships, and this was, of course, during a uh, period of structural adjustment, and people were moving to cities uh, in very large numbers. What was happening was the city itself and urban and imagining the urban in a different way was a kind of like object for activists. And so because, too, the left had been decimated by these military regimes, a lot of these activists were sort of disconnected or their connection to the older leftist thinking, uh, which did not necessarily see the city as an important battleground, that was interrupted. And so they were kind of inventing anew what radical city, what a radical city might look like. They were very intent on recapturing institutions you know, whether it was transportation or housing or any of the number of issues that was super salient uh, as these cities were experiencing austerity and large numbers of migrants. So there were the early cities uh, and they were, many of them were successful. So these sort of autonomous leftists might win city government um, in many places. They invented or discovered or rediscovered systems of popular assemblies. They had this idea of opening up uh, parts of of municipal machinery to these assemblies or to direct citizen input. They experimented a long time. Um, And sort of this first generation uh, transforms as the national left of center parties begin to have success. So the next thing that happens 
is that many of these municipal radicals become part of national left of center parties or left of center regimes. You know, everybody knows about the pink tide, which was this moment, uh, the so-called pink tide when Latin America, when left of center parties were essentially hegemonic in the region. So from Uruguay, all the way, you know, Mexico did not have a left of center government, but left of center forces were present. Uh, and so during the pink tide, a lot of these cities became kind of marquee cities, sort of like demonstrations of what these progressive left politics could look like at the municipal level. So during this next period, a lot of these experiences multiply. There's a tremendous amount of learning from city to city. There are many, many, many networks promoting local democracy. European funding comes in and the UN comes in and begins to exchange ideas between regions. And there's a tremendous amount of ferment in a context that seemed hopeful uh, at the national level. So, you know, if you were to visit any one of these cities, uh, you know, if you would happen to go to Sao Paulo during one of the Workers' Party administrations, uh, or you're going to Montevideo, um, you know, you would find a, a very hopeful sense of, of what municipal, radical municipal politics could look like. And it was a fairly, in, in contrast to, Puchkin, for example, it was a fairly um, straightforward story that that people used to understand, which is, look, municipal politics provide a space for a kind of direct democracy via assemblies, citizen meetings. People are able to turn over a lot of decision making to the citizen mandate, and this activates a sort of popular politics that then scales up and finds, you know, expression in, in the national mandate, you know. So it was not uncommon, again, to return to the city of Porto Alegre, which was perhaps the, the Brazilian marquee case. And I would attend meetings and, you know, there were meetings on <clears throat> municipal investments uh, in some of one of the poorer regions of the city, people were making demands. And the mayor would show up and he would say, those are terrific. We can't meet them. We need to make sure we win the next national election and we put people in Congress so that our municipal politics, our radical municipal politics can be supported. So it was, it was kind of like a vision of autonomous radical democracy that somehow sca could scaffold up and be supported by a friendly national government. And this was true in many, many cases. Uh, another important, more radical example is El Alto in uh, Bolivia. You know, it was more autonomous than some of the other cases, you know, the worker cooperatives and this idea of having something outside the state was very, very important. But even there, there was a sense that, look, the national government sort of has our back and this is part of building up. There's, there was a sense of always scaffolding and growing. 
And then when we did this issue, of course, the pink tide, you know, now we talk about the great U-turn in Latin America and many, many countries, uh, right-wing governments have come in very violently. Brazil is uh, essentially, you know, has as president a, a fascist wannabe who uh, is, and you know, we're having very strong anti-left sentiment. A lot of things are being rolled back. There's no support for many of the initiatives that emerge at the local level. And so now we have this newest generation of sort of municipalist or radical activism that is sort of like the Butchkin version, which is, it's about building local politics. It's about creating those radical spaces where new demands and new civic power and popular power can emerge, but with a great deal of uh, skepticism towards, or more skepticism towards a national government or a, na or a national political party that is going to be able to come in and rescue and help. And, and the last thing I'll say is that to give you, if in 2005, you would, if you randomly showed up at a large Latin American municipal center, it was probably leftist and it was probably hopeful. Um, half of the essays that we received on radical cities uh, in Latin America were about radically conservative cities, radical pro-market reforms, which gives you a sense of, of just how far the pendulum uh, has shifted. So, so that is sort of, you know, now we're trying to make sense of what worked and what didn't and what are some of the lessons and, and so on. But as, as we put it in, you know, in dialogue with this global municipalist discussion, I always like to have a sort of historical interlude. Uh, of course, the municipal, the, you know, the, the discourse and the history and the trajectory is different. But the world around these cities and the national context around these cities has shifted very dramatically uh, over the span of 20 years. Thanks for that um, overview, Jean-Paul. Uh, we might come back to this, um, the, the kind of pessimism and this concern around radical conservative cities, as I think you called them. But you touched on it already just, just before. Uh, so I wondered if we could go a little bit deeper into it. Um, thinking about the new municipalism uh, as, um, as a political project, as a, as a kind of intellectual project as well, how, uh, how would you um, relate the Latin, uh, Latin American experiences to what's going on now, not only in Europe, but uh, elsewhere? Um, particularly thinking perhaps in, in, in terms of uh, some of the, and you touched on some of the intellectual uh, similarities, dissimilarities, uh, some of the political similarities and dissimilarities. The interesting thing about uh, this, perhaps this move to, um, from having kind of a politics aimed at um, uh, all scale to the urban level at the city level, based at the city level, it's about aiming uh, to garner support um, at the national level or to get success at the national level to this kind of more butchin type approach where it's about creating radical spaces and the possibilities which come from from those spaces in themselves uh, and I'm rambling a bit now so I'll try to make a question out of that um, so 
some of the similarities, dissimilarities, and perhaps some of uh, uh, the lessons which you think can can be taken from the Latin American experiences? Yeah, so um, I, I think that's right. I, that's right. I, I, I tend to see the similarities and the dissimilarities uh, in in the way uh, you, you've you've framed it, Ross. So I think you know the the specter of the national uh, has always loomed larger for the Latin American municipal, if, if we call it Latin American municipalism or Latin American radical cities um you know i was um I, I was just reading there's a nice essay in the nakla report uh by angus mcnally about el alto which in bolivia you know was one of the most uh interesting examples of a kind of radical municipal politics that was very centered on radical spaces that were jealously you know people guarded their autonomy their autonomy from the state uh, very, very seriously, you know, the, the the kind of local radical politics are really important. And El Alto was doing stuff, but people had an eye on La Paz, the capital city, at the same time. So I think one difference is the this sort of like national horizon always being there. Uh, at, at least through to recent times, I think um, I think it's for a couple of reasons. So one, I I think the the political culture that this emerges from in Latin America is more statist. Anyway, the left has is more has always been more statist. Um, I think too that there is some. There's some sense that the national questions were too important for people's survival in a way that, you know, you could imagine people more easily turning their backs on national questions, or if not turning their backs, sort of bracketing them. You know, in Bolivia, one of the, one of the things that happened under the national mass was a new constitution that recognized indigenous rights and radically transformed education. Or in the case of Brazil, uh, you know, questions of funding and, and literacy and basic healthcare. Still, you know, th there's little, it, it's, it was hard for them to imagine building that sort of radical local power without having some thought to that just on the basis of questions of day-to-day uh, -day survival. So I think that's one difference. I think relatedly, um, the question of the, of the political party uh, somehow has tended to be more important in Latin America. And in here, you know, uh, you know the Latin American experiences are closer to the Spanish municipalist experiences than some of the uh, other European ones in that people spent a lot of time trying to imagine and reimagine what a political party um, would look like. In my um, in my in my book uh, on sovereignty, we the sovereign, I talk a little bit about this formulation people had, which was 
inside, alongside, or outside of institutions like political parties and the state. And they always had this idea that they would participate in a political party, but that there was an important counterweight to be had outside. They would participate in reforming the municipal state, uh, you know, to transform the way that schools and transportation budgets were allocated. But their vision was this sort of inside reform um, could only really be radical if there was a kind of counterweight, if there was something on the outside as well. You know, and this is resonant with the Buchkin kinds of ideas, which was these autonomous spaces for radical imaginings that weren't captured by the bureaucratic mandate. And to me, you know, one of the, I, I think it's, I, I, I sort of take two contradictory lessons from it. One is that engaging these institutions was meaningful and is meaningful, and we just have to think of how to do it in a way that doesn't capture uh, the radical imagination. Uh, but the other lesson was that in many Latin American cases, uh, energies got absorbed. And, you know, look, having meetings uh, outside of institutions to discuss long-term political subjectivities and produce fewer results than going to a meeting deciding where the budget was going to be spent. And so in some way, um, energies wound up being captured by institutions. And the outside spaces that was supposed to be a counterweight that people you know, in their writing and in their interviews and in their day-to-day -day talk, worried about a lot. Those outside spaces wound up, uh, you know, being sucked up by the institutional struggle. Uh, you know, the to return to the case of Brazil, Brazil is a, nationally, is a remarkable story of tremendous policy success and tremendous redistribution that wasn't accompanied by this autonomous organizing in these political spaces uh, so that a fascist or neo-fascist political project could just come and weirdly occupy it because all the activists and all the energies were focused on bureaucratic matters. So I, I guess it's these two lessons, you know, all the time when I talk to activists or I talk to, you know, people thinking about bridging activists and scholarly or, you know, the discussions here in the U.S. about political parties, I always encourage people to not turn away from that. Uh, but, you know, a key lesson is trying to figure out some way to do it that doesn't suck up all the energy and doesn't, you know, wind up colonizing uh, those, those radical spaces. One thing that um, I, I might be wrong, but one thing I think both um, Latin American experiences and uh, the more recent new municipalist uh, projects uh, have in common is that they're, they're both kind of democratic projects or radical democratic projects. Um, what do you think are the, uh, the positive aspects of that and perhaps the limitations of this 
as democracy as a as a as a political imaginary. Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. Sorry, we I, we wind up in these days always having instrumental conversations about things. Of course, the central similarity of the new municipalism with the European municipalism or, and these early Latin American examples and contemporary Latin American examples is that they have this, at the heart, they're radically democratic projects. In the Latin American case, that meant it was a project of uh, democratizing knowledge, democratizing expertise, constantly uh, questioning itself about the democraticness of its representation. Um, you know, I, I, I did a little bit of writing about uh, with my uh, Spanish colleague Ernesto Ganusa about some of, uh, a little bit about the indignados in Spain and many of the discussions people were having, which is how do we democratize our sense of who we are and how are we building that and constantly working on that is absolutely um, a similarity. So in the Latin American case, to be specific, it was always an effort to increase the reach of democratic decision making. So, you know, what procedures and processes can we democratize? But it was also an effort to democratize the public, have more and more different kinds of people. So, you know, a constant worry uh, in many of these Latin American cases was, you know, making sure or working at making sure that it's not only university professors and university students and radical intellectuals who are the spokespeople. It was thinking about gender uh, and a little, a little bit uh, lesser extent back then anyway, questions of sexuality. Uh, it was about democratizing the public in terms of uh, race and bringing in those questions. So, so the, the radical democraticness is absolutely central. And, you know, a, a shared concern with the current municipalists or a shared insight is that that sort of project is more possible at the local level and it's more possible when the institutions are visible and the people are knowable and you know at, at that sort of scale and you know in in the case of latin america now uh th there is an interesting sort of rethinking and questioning of that uh in a couple of ways one of the ways people are questioning is was it really you know, in Brazil, they have this phrase, it's sort of the gamble on institutions. And the idea that the radical democratic project in the case of Brazil was to do that and build this ever more radical sense of the people and the public while investing in democratic institutions. So make them elections fairer, make parties better. Um, and a kind of thinking that why was all this investment in institutions and in democratic procedures when the far right and the right was not interested in playing along those lines? You know, the democratic institutions that were built in Brazil turned out to be very thin defenses against 
you know, WhatsApp and international consultants and legal challenges, you know, they didn't hold very long when the, when the national democracy uh, was, was challenged. And then I think there is, a, a, there is another interesting line of thinking about the limits of the radical democratic project. Um, you know, not only are they worried about was it too much focus on process and formal institutions, um, but this question of representation and scaling up um, maybe wasn't as easy as people thought. Somehow moving from the radical representation of the local assembly and the neighborhood council to all the way through a representative process, uh, either for a national party for the, or the national parliament, turned out to be more difficult to do. You know, uh, the the Workers' Party in Brazil had a number of, you know, pretty, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is, you know, self-inflicted wounds uh, with some corrupt politicians who had been from movements and somehow there wasn't a way for that kind of local democracy to exert power over, uh, you know, these kinds of like national actors in a way they sort they were able to sort of escape the reach of, the, of that local radical democracy. Yeah, so for sure, radical democracy is at its center. And I think there's interesting thinking now about, you know, what might that look like uh, moving forward, or what can a radical democratic vision do before this new, very difficult context that many of these people are facing? I'd like to um, ask you about the sub uh, suburbanization and this kind of process of extended urbanization that has also. Um, affected Latin America um, uh, tremendously uh, over the past uh, few decades, and and how what these kind of sp spatial processes have meant for um, radical, uh, transformative uh, urban politics, and I mean, I guess this 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 has posed also significant challenges in view of uh, generating local autonomy and uh, or or confederations of of localist uh, projects uh, i wonder if you can can speak to that uh, significance of these suburban developments no i i think the suburban developments are absolutely uh part of of the puzzle and to some extent the inability to face them or understand them in time has to do with this conservative backlash. So, you know, as the Latin American suburbanization has been uh, taking place at a very, very fast pace, you know, colleagues uh, who do satellite, they have to use satellite images um, because the growth in the suburban areas of large cities is so fast, you know, that the censuses can't capture it. You know, people talk about wild growth and these suburban frontiers, um, 
where you have these tremendous jurisdictional issues. So most, for example, to take a city like Sao Paulo, the growth in these suburban areas is orders of magnitude faster than happens in, in uh, center city or more traditional urban areas. And these, and, and the way that the, 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 the legal framework works in Brazil, and this is somewhat similar in other Latin American countries, is that there's a fair amount of autonomy uh, for these suburban, for, for these municipalities. So, you know, the metro region of, of Sao Paulo, I believe, has 27 municipalities, only one of which is Sao Paulo City. And the remaining 26 uh, are growing very, very fast. The way that the resources are distributed means that the tax base and the resource base for these suburban areas is just a tiny, tiny fraction. In other words, the federalist arrangement tends to favor center cities and capital cities and cities where uh, financial services, for example, take place. So what you have is um, very, very large and growing poor populations far from city centers, often working in city centers, uh, but living lives, you know, sometimes these commuter lives or, you know, people have average commutes sometimes two, three, four hours to get to these outside suburban areas with extremely underfunded municipalities. So the difficulties of organizing uh, in those has been a tremendous challenge. So uh, outside of Sao Paulo, to, there's a, a city called Guarulhos, which is where the airport is. Guarulhos has traditionally had a very leftist uh, radical administration and um, has had very radical urban movement. But for them to organize and win victories at the local level in Guarulhos, um, they, they have very little it has very little practical consequence. In other words, you know, because it's an underfunded city that's de depending on transfers, um, the traditional formula that people had, you know, the leftist formula, which was to win the local city government based on these movements, turn over decisions to these movements um, that would then sort of activate local democracy because people are seeing real results. Um, has been difficult. Uh, people's lives in these suburban areas are often more difficult. Um, you know, the way that a lot of services in Brazil were organized from health to education to social services, they're provided for at the municipal level. So all, all of those elements are more difficult. Uh, Brazil doesn't have anything resembling real regional planning so to get from one of those outside areas to center city often involves, you know, many, many transfers with a completely irrational transportation system. And the organizing project, the political organizing project of um, building up these spaces, you know, even bracketing the question of whether they can access municipal power or not is more difficult. And to 
to sort of add insult to injury in some of these suburban uh, metro areas, uh, the very conservative churches have made tremendous inroads uh, in organizing people's consciousnesses at a time where um, leftists, if not abandoned, um, have given up to some extent. So when uh, Bolsonaro won, you know, and it was a, a little bit of a shock to people uh, in Brazil, he had very, very strong voting from some of these areas. Um, the issue of violence is tends to be actually very bad in some of these suburban metro areas. Uh, the, the wealthy people who live in suburbs, because of these lax regulations, are able to live almost entirely separate lives in these gated communities. So, you know, in some of these suburban uh, areas, you know, you might drive past, you'll see an airport, you see an exclusive shopping mall, you see two or three gated communities, and you see vast expanses of sort of informal or semi-formal housing. Uh, in the political project uh, of organizing something like a municipalist alliance or a confederation or assemblies is very, very difficult. Oh, and of, of course, this, this is maybe an obvious point to listeners of this podcast and to you, but just the spatial layout of some of these suburban areas also militates against, you know, distances are vast. Uh, there, you know, there's not a, a town square where people can meet. There are no obvious places for meeting. Uh, yeah, so absolutely the suburbanization is, is part of the story. And I think it's a, it, it, it poses a significant challenge. I believe that the urban growth nationally, to use the example of Brazil again, is uh, much higher uh, in suburban areas than in, in city centers at the moment. Uh, that's a fascinating insight and it speaks to uh, lots of uh, topics we, we discussed with uh, Roger Kyle on an earlier podcast in his, his book, um, Suburban Planet. Changing tack slightly, Gianpaolo, uh, um, some of your more recent work has been um, more directly about democracy, more more theoretical, drawing on the Latin American experiences. Um, uh, your last book, uh, We the Sovereign, um, develops this notion of popular sovereignty, and uh, you've also written about popular democracy. Uh, could you outline uh, your understandings of these concepts and how they relate to the urban or, 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 or the, these kind of radical city uh, experiences? Oh, well, thank you for asking. So, we the sovereign. Uh, so, so popular democracy was a book with a Spanish colleague Ernesto Ganusa, who I've mentioned. And we tried to take stock of traveling toolkits about participation and, uh, you know, in, in particular, participatory budgeting, traveling the world as a sort of good governance practice. And what in this era where everyone is for participation, but few people will let you have substantive democracy, what spaces does something like participatory budgeting, in fact, open. And uh, in, in that book, we came to a conclusion that pleased 
absolutely no one, which is participatory budgeting works when it breaks down. That is when people get mad at it for not providing the substantive democracy. Uh, and we, the sovereign, <coughs> was, um, I wrote that shortly uh, after Trump was elected in the United States. And I wanted to sort of rescue uh, this Latin American theory of, of popular sovereignty, which to my mind had been um, slightly misunderstood as, you know, the country was taking, you know, as the continent was taking this U-turn, you know, the there was a lot of social democratic celebration of the pink tide. And then when it started to unravel, there was a lot of leftist condemnation for not being radical enough. And I wanted to rescue this theory of popular sovereignty and try to try to remind people of, of the radical potential uh, that it had and the radical political project that it actually was. So we, the sovereign, so the, the argument of the book is, is also its title. So popular sovereignty for many of these theorists, and as I, I sort of distilled in the book, is a contradictory political project. So is if you imagine the most radical we, the most horizontal, internally democratic, porous and expansive notion of a people uh, on one hand, combined with the most absolute sense of self-determination uh, possible. So ultimate sovereignty for an ultimately democratic uh, political subject, an ultimate democratic, plural, and horizontal political subject. So this vision, uh, I argue in the book, is actually unites both the mass uh, in Bolivia, the Zapatistas, uh, and Workers' Party in Brazil, and many, many others. And this or was kind of like an orienting political project. Uh, in other words, it wasn't so much a a blueprint or stages, but a kind of like, you know, there's the phrase will make the road by walking, sort of telling you which way to walk. Um, and I wanted to rescue that, uh, you know, as the recriminations of, of these leftist governments and the recriminations about these local municipal experiments for not being radical enough. Uh, I wanted to rescue it to say, look, might have been that they they wound up not being as radical as intended, but they did not intend to be neoliberal or social democratic or or whatever the charge or governance oriented reformist socialism, whatever the charges actually are. I wanted to. There was a plan. There was a, an idea that this kind of strong version of a state held in check by the strong plural sub, you know, subject was an imagining of how to bring about another society. And um, although I don't say this much in the book, I've been criticized for having uh, an urban bias in the book. Uh, 
most of this theory was hatched up in the context of these urban experiments. I wanted this to be a reminder of the radical theory that I understood to be at the center of, of this project in Latin America in the, in the 90s through the early 2000s. And I think it's one that's worth um, people engaging with. I, I always tell young activists uh, in Europe, but also in the United States, and now increasingly I go to Brazil and there's a, a generational distance between current activists and this earlier stuff, this is all part of our legacy. We, whoever is trying to be a partisan of a better future and better cities and radical democracies now has this as part of their legacy. And, and I think it's a set of ideas worth at least uh, engaging with. And I, I wanted to also use the word sovereignty because... Um, Autonomists and anarchists have such an allergy to it, and I wanted it to be a little provocative uh, and to remind people that the vision of sovereignty, of local sovereignty, of radical democratic sovereignty people had was, was different, was not necessarily the kind of sovereignty uh, that you know, people argue against on the left today. So just um, that, that was a great overview of of, of, of the book. Uh, just thinking of that in relation to, I think uh, going back and thinking in relation to the new municipalism, what's happening now, and um, uh, this notion of popular sovereignty. Uh, can you see that informing uh, the new municipalism in direct, indirect ways. I mean, certainly there might be something around the idea of the state as a kind of political, as a popular project. But um, do you see that legacy um, informing uh, uh, what's happening in Europe and elsewhere in Latin America and in the states uh, uh, and in other places? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know the. Um one of the things that I did not do in the book because I think it's too wordy uh, and there's too much said about it already. Um, you know, this has some relation to a kind of left populist project and this idea of popular sovereignty, for example, in Spain and it exists within Podemos in some ways. And I know, uh, folks from Barcelona and Comú when, when they think of what their relationship to the state is and ought to be and what should the state be and replacing the state with or thinking of the state as a porous target of popular power with the aim to transform it, it, it I think it definitely, uh, in, in that context, it, it definitely dialogues uh, with it. I think in the um, in the United States, it's kind of interesting because there's such a strong um, hatred of the state at the moment uh, among people, uh, you know, among activists sometimes that this is a harder sell. Uh, but I feel like it's absolutely important, you know, you know, for example, 
you, um, I, I, I don't remember this being talked about in, in one of your shows, but people maybe know that uh, Democratic Socialists of America, for example, is uh, becoming, has been becoming increasingly influential. Uh, and the city council of Chicago, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is 10% DSA at the moment, which sounds like science fiction. Uh, and it's not unthinkable that it could be 25% or 30% and they'll be in a position to actually seriously reform or seriously address some local institution in Chicago. And for that, I think thinking back about this radical democratic vision of the state as transformable uh, and porous to popular power in a, in a democratic way would be important. You know, I think um, sometimes on the other side of the left, on the more, there's a sense that, look, really good policies will just carry the day. And I think one of the lessons from, you know, one of this, uh, one of the insights from this sort of popular sovereignty vision is that a, a policy is never complete and a, a good idea and a good policy won't carry the day, but it's part of a process that uh, needs to be continually fought over and can be a front to build popular power. Yeah. So I absolutely think uh, it can relate. Um, I, you know, I'm less fluent in the discussions and in the current understanding people have about the municipal socialism in Britain, the, the, I, uh, I know you had Hillary Wayne right on uh, recently, but I feel like even there, um, th there is an effort to sort of put this in, in dialogue. So let's have a little reflection on um, this relationship between um, activist practice and uh, academic scholarship. And so far we've focused on your work as an academic scholar in which you have highlighted also the lessons that you draw from this, uh, these historic experiences um, that practitioners have made. So, Uh, could you tell us a little bit in terms of how you um, relate your insights back to to political practice and uh, maybe speaking about the Urban Democracy Lab that you have uh, also uh, co-founded? Ah, oh, thank you for that. You know, I, I think of myself as being part of this big conversation that you are all having uh, in the podcast and elsewhere. I think I'm a, I'm a fellow traveler uh, with you in trying to figure out, you know, what is our, what is the way to do this and, and be part of this relationship? You know, at the very least, how can we be useful? Uh, but at the most, maybe is there a way that we can also transform our practice uh, as scholars, you know, I, 
I describe myself as an activist scholar, but I, you know, I, I try not to forget the privilege that I have, that you have, which is, you know, our jobs allow us the opportunity to be exposed to many things and learn from many people. And, and well, before the pandemic, I guess we used to travel. Uh, we have access to a lot of information and insights. And I think one of the things I've tried to do uh, with, my, with my scholarly work is uh, translate and traffic in, in some of these insights and try to be deliberate um, about how I do that. The, um, the Urban Democracy Lab sort of took its inspiration uh, from some things I know in Latin America, but also in Spain. This, I think in Spain they have these fabricas de sueños with the, the factories of dreams. The idea of these spaces of dialogue and thinking out loud. And so the, the idea of the Urban Democracy Lab uh, started in 2014 was really to be very explicit and intentional about creating a space for dialogue across uh, practitioners, students, activists, scholars. Um, so, you know, we, having this experience in radical democracy, of course, we try to be deliberate and, and thoughtful about uh, the quality of the events and public events that we do. We try to be very thoughtful about expertise and what kinds of expertise, you know, one thing I, I don't want to reproduce is that I, as a scholar or a person with an academic job, get to theorize uh, and that other people get to do things and I get to write about it. I, I really try to uh, instill and have a, a, a egalitarian ethic. Um, We've worked with uh, a number of different organizations. Uh, you know, we, we try to have these partnerships. I write to the city in the United States as one. Uh, we also recently been working with an organization here in New York called Align. Uh, one of our students worked on one, a, a report they have done about uh, a socially just uh, sort of this beyond recovery post-pandemic, what might it look like? Um, and uh, one of the projects I have been doing with uh, some, some colleagues is trying to think of how some of these demands that are emerging from movements now, uh, such as, you know, defund the police or cancel rent, um, what might that look like as policy? In other words, can is there a way for us to use our expertise, our language, our research? What would a cancel rent policy look like? How much would it cost? You know, trying to give some of that scaffolding. Uh, I'll put an essay. Uh, I'll put a link up that you can share with the episode. Uh, have some structured reflections. Uh, on that, and um, I can also share um, a couple of these reports if you'd like to see. We have just we did one on canceling rent, 
We're doing one now uh, around uh, private equity uh, and real estate. One of the things that many people are predicting is that uh, there will be a lot of residential properties, a lot of rentals uh, are going to be in financial trouble and they'll be purchased by private equity firms which have set aside hundreds of billions of dollars just for this purpose. And this is going to be, uh, you know, just, just an absolutely terrible outcome from the point of view of, of the right to the city. Uh, yeah. So those, those are some of the things we've uh, been working on. Um, a colleague and I, uh, Jake Carlson, we have been actually working on a proposal for, a social housing investment authority or a social housing development corporation, which would be the idea that the, this federal authority would buy up these troubled buildings before private equity has a chance to get their hands in them and then finance their, their sale to cooperatives of tenants. Uh, so, you know, find a way to use this crisis to, increase the social housing sector in the United States. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think that's some of the things we've been doing with the Urban Democracy Lab. We've been very, we're very concerned, of course, uh, with what will happen, uh, you know, next week or by the time, was, but what will happen with the U.S. election and its aftermath. Uh, so we've been trying to give voice to, to organizers and activists who are preparing uh, for the various scenarios that might happen. Thank you very much, John Paolo. Thanks to you for listening. For more information, visit our website, urbanpolitical.podigy.io. Please subscribe and follow us on Twitter.